Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. We're currently in our sermon series, Next. The best is yet to come. For the past 20 years of Rolling Hills, we have seen God do more than we could ever imagine. Countless lives have been impacted for eternity. Many have professed their faith through baptism. Adults and children have grown in their faith through discipleship. Campuses have been launched in communities all throughout Middle Tennessee. And the vulnerable and the least have been served throughout the world. God has shown up time and time again, and now we faithfully look ahead to what is next for His church, knowing that it's not about us and our future, but about God and His perfect plan. Our prayer is that this will be a season that we look back on and see as one where God grew and stretched His people in ways He never has before. We're believing we will see restored relationships, miracles happen right before our eyes, radical salvations, and prodigals returning home. We believe for all of this and more. In this series, we're walking through the book of Nehemiah and how God's call on his people in that day is one he still has for us in 2023. May he find us faithful as we step forward, trusting that the best truly is yet to come. So listen in as we jump into what the Lord has for us today. For the past 20 years, we've had a front row seat to God doing more than we could ever imagine. Lives impacted for all eternity. Public professions of faith through baptism. Kids and adults discipled in the ways of Jesus. Campuses expanded to reach the multitudes, serving the least, the last, and the lost. And now our sights are set on something bigger and bolder, something immeasurably more. Let us join God in what he is doing next. Good morning. This is what I normally wear to church. So if you saw me in my baptism clothes a few minutes, what a special day um, to be here to get to celebrate the gift and the picture of what baptism is for us as a people who understand better our commitment to Christ with pictures, with, with pictures of Jesus dying for us and then coming back to life so that we might live a brand new life in him. I'm so excited for Shelby and for all of us to get to experience that together today. As Joel said, this is the conclusion for us of a series that we've been in for uh, eight weeks now that's all about the idea of what's next in the life of our church. After 20 years uh, of God's favor and allowing us to do ministry here in Middle Tennessee, starting in Franklin and then moving to Nolansville and then adding Nashville and then eventually Columbia and now another Nashville campus, God just continues to provide in immeasurably more ways than anything we could have thought about or asked for or imagined all those many years ago. So if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope that you do, some sort of analog version where you're going to turn the pages to find the book of Nehemiah. We're going to start in verse chapter 9, not stay there very long, and then move all the way to the end of the book in chapter 13, where we'll spend 
the bulk of our time this morning in chapters 12 and 13. If you've been with us, you know that we've been chronicling this, this, this idea of a leader named Nehemiah called out of Persia and a place of influence to go back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the wall around the city. And as we come together today as a church, after having prayed for God to do again more than what we can ask for or imagine, to take us into the next 20 years, that, that next mission, that next generation, like what is God going to continue to faithfully do in the life of our church long after you and I are here a part of it? We're going to trust and believe that he has something next for us, but then next for all of us together. This is not just a special day in the life of the church, in the life of Rolling Hills. It's also a special day for my family because it was on this day 17 years ago that we welcomed our first child, 17 years old. Now you know how you can pray for me. That's a big deal, right? A kid that's a junior in high school, going to be a senior, and then a grown-up, and all the things that come after that. Well, long before she was born and came into the picture, my wife and I met working at camp in college. And I've shared this story in some context before, but my buddy Josh and I uh, were working in a Christian camp in North Carolina at the time, and she was as well. And she was actually working in the cafeteria line as we were coming through to get our food that day for the students that we were serving through the week. And I remember Josh remarking about the girl at the very end of the counter who was working the sweet tea, how cute she was. And I said, you're not wrong. And so he, who was not going to ask her name, asked me if I would do it. And I said, absolutely. But not wanting to draw too much attention to her individually, I just decided to ask every girl in that line what their name was. Hey, what's your name? Oh, that's cool. Where do you go to school? Oh, I got a friend that goes there. Do you have a boyfriend? Next girl. Hey, what's your name? Oh, that's awesome. Where do you go to school? Oh, I've been there before. You got a boyfriend? Hey, what's your name? And she tells me, Susan, and this was the whole strategy all along. You're thinking, wow, that's really sly. Hey, what's your name? Where do you go to school? She happened to be transferring to where I already was. It was meant to be. Do you have a boyfriend? She, in fact, did not. I learned recently, because I have a 17-year-old and because sometimes I hang out with the college students here at Rolling Hills, that if this would have happened today and not 25 years ago, that would have been called. Like that very moment, it would have been called a meet-cute. Y'all heard that before? A meet-cute? Apparently not. Um, ask a 21-year-old. They will know exactly what a, a meet-cute is. It's the story of how you met. Fast forward to after a couple of years of dating when I asked her a very important question, to which she replied, yes, first time we got married. And then six years later, God blessed us with that first baby, and now she's 17 years old. Y'all going to have to pause while I cry. No, I won't. It's okay. I'm so excited, though, for her. We're here in this spot. Like, my 17-year-old is here because her mom said yes. We're here in this spot, in this room, in fact, built in, I think, 1932. This property beginning in 1909. We're here because some people a long time ago that we don't even know said yes. Some people said yes to the thing that God was doing in their life, in their day, in their generation, to put a church on this corner, to have outreach in this city, hoping that it would last far beyond them. We're here because they said yes. Yesterday, I was privileged, like I am a lot of times, to be able to stand in front of a congregation a little bigger than this. It was exciting. We were down in Arrington, which is a pretty place, doing a wedding. They were very thankful that it did not rain yesterday. So I'm standing in front of this couple who's saying yes not knowing everything that's going to happen in their lives to come, not knowing the twist and the turns and the adventure that God is going to take them on. And if I'm ever given an opportunity to do a wedding, I always try to work in this aspect of communicating to not only the couple, but the crowd that's there. As radiant as you look today, bride, you're not the perfect woman for him. And as awesome as you are and as excited as she is, groom, 
you're not the perfect guy for her. Reason is because there's no such thing. As dressed up as we can get and as many promises as we can make, as many vows and rings as we can exchange, there will never be that perfect someone standing before you because there's no such thing as the perfect one in the world in front of you. And you and I stand today looking at a passage of scripture where the people of God had been assembled around a wall that they had just completed, ready to give their all to God, to do better than the generation who came before them, making a proud declaration, we will keep our commitment to you, God. We will obey everything you've said to us, God, recognizing that there was going to be failure yet again in the wake. If you have your Bibles, we're going to dive into the idea of Nehemiah chapter 9. And we've said several weeks as a part of this series that there's some sort of litmus test for us to know what God's call is in our life. Some sort of indication of how you and I can know that something is for the Lord. When it's for the Lord, it will be for others. And we can know that that's true. If God is calling us to do something, if God is calling us to be something, if God is calling us to engage the world in some way, it will not only be for him, it will be for others. Jesus was asked by a young expert in the law, hey, sum up the whole Old Testament for us and tell us what the most important command is. And you know what he said. It's in Matthew chapter 22. He was quoting the book of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And then Jesus gave him a bonus. He said, love your neighbor. It's from the book of Leviticus as yourself. The top two things that any believer in Jesus Christ could ever do is that which is for the Lord, honoring him with everything that we have, and we know that if it is honoring to him, it will be an opportunity for others. That's why we've been praying about the people who come after us, the people who are surrounding us, the people who are not yet a part of us, that they might get to know that God loves them with an everlasting love and that he can keep a commitment that they absolutely never could. When it's for the Lord, it's for others, and it also includes others. The beauty of all of this is that we were never invited to do any of this by ourselves. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 38, it says, in view of this, in view of this, you see in chapter 7 and 8, Ezra had read the law and the people had sobbed and worshiped the great God for allowing them to complete not only the temple inside it, but the wall that surrounded it. And on the 24th day of that same month, at the beginning of chapter 9, they gathered and confessed their sins and said, hey, we know we're not perfect. Hey, we know that we've gotten it wrong. We know that our ancestors for generations got so many things wrong, and that's what stops us in exile in the first place. And so here we are as a people who are committing ourselves to you. And verse 38 says, says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are fixing their seals to it. You know, the most important thing that I do at a wedding ceremony isn't what happens on the stage in front of people. It's what happens afterwards when I go and sign their marriage license, when I fix my name to it and then send it back to the state. That's when it all, it's not super special, but it is when it becomes official. And so right there yesterday in front of all of their friends and all of their family and all of their community, this young couple made a pledge and a commitment to one another. And then we as a community made a pledge and a commitment to them to hold them accountable and to give them encouragement and support along the way. And then I fixed my seal on it. And all of a sudden, these guys were married. Did you catch that part in the verse where it says we? We made a binding agreement. We put it in writing. Our leaders and our Levites and our priests, they affix their seals to it. Anything that's worth doing for God will be for others, and it will also include others. 
Duke Divinity Scholar and American theologian, I don't quote him very often because his name is hard to pronounce, Stanley Hauerwas, he said the sermon, the proclamation of this word, the Bible study that we engage, the material that we go over, it's not a list of requirements. And if it feels that way, then something about the delivery of it is feeling wrong. But rather, it's a description of the life of a people, not a person, but a people assembled together around Jesus. That means that church, this assembly, any church, our greater assembly, forms the context for the ethic of Jesus. To put it in terms that we can better understand, Matthew Gerard, you may not recognize that name, but you know his work. He writes Disney songs. He says, we're all in this together. And there's actually a dance move that goes with it that I won't do because, you know, embarrassment and all. We are. We were meant to be in this together. We were never meant to do any of it by ourselves. We, it's in your notes this morning if you'd like to write things down because it helps you remember or stay awake in the moment. We is always greater than me. We is always greater than me. And what we can do together for God is always greater than anything that we can accomplish by ourselves for God. If you skip to chapter 10, verse 29, it says, All these now join their fellow Israelites and nobles. It's the people of God coming together and they bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. They listed it. They listed, if you continue to read, they listed all the promises that they were making, all the rules that they had no intent of breaking. They listed everything that they planned to keep, and then the names of the people who were making that covenant. They listed it because it was important. To what degree of importance is the Lord's place in your life? Because after 70 years of exile, you read little stories about what was going on when the people were carried off to Babylon in the book of Daniel. You understand how the prophet Jeremiah explained that it would be for 70 years in response to the disobedient that the land had always not been able to rest for 490 years. You get this picture of what's going on and then Cyrus the Persian comes back and he gives this decree. All of you Jews who were exported and taken off to Babylon, the Persian government is now in control and you guys get to go back home. And so in several different ways, starting with Zerubbabel and Shealtiel and all these people, they get to go back and rebuild God's temple, but it wasn't until after they had already built their own homes. And so the prophet Haggai stands in front of me. He's like, hey, why does the Lord's house stand in ruins when you guys are busy building your own houses and starting your own businesses and getting settled back into the land? Why is it that the Lord's house still stands? And so they made a commitment and a covenant, and they built the temple back again. So we read about that in the book of Ezra how the temple was constructed and then dedicated, and then Nehemiah, still stuck in Persia, working for the king as a cupbearer in the center court, he lamented that the wall still lay in ruins. Because if the wall wasn't constructed, the beautiful temple that had just been completed would be susceptible to yet another invasion. And so he reckons, how important is it that we do the Lord's work in our lives? How important is his place in our lives at the end of chapter 10 verse 39 the people make a declaration we will not neglect the house of our God and that word neglect if you go back to the Hebrew language it means exactly what you think it means it means to leave to forsake to set loose it means to abandon 
We're not going to make a declaration to tell God that he's primary in our lives and then abandon the thing that he wants to do in our lives. And then chapter 11 and chapter 12, it lists a whole lot of names and a whole lot of pomp and a whole lot of ceremonial circumstance. There's choirs and there's staging and there's details for a grand celebration. It was probably a lot nicer than a wheelbarrow. But that's what we got today and we're excited about it. They all brought offerings and they weighed considerably the things that they didn't follow about the law before because it was a counting the cost moment. What kind of sacrifice are we going to make? What kind of effort are we going to bring? Jesus talked about that, this idea of counting the cost and taking up a cross. You know, when we count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, counting the cost means making a commitment and understanding consequences. We talk about that commitment. Last week, we were privileged to hear a testimony from the Spangenberg family in our Franklin campus. And he quoted a passage of scripture from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 24. It was a moment when, when King David wanted to begin the process of having a place where the temple would be built. No longer would it be a portable tabernacle that they took with him, but where are we going to build the temple of God? And so he found the threshing floor. I don't know a lot about agriculture, so I can't really explain what a threshing floor is. You can look it up later because we have this thing called Google. But a threshing floor of this guy named Arun, and he goes to him, and he's ready to buy it. And Arun's like, no, you don't have to buy it, King David. And King David says, I insist on paying you for it because I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. The thing that we bring to God ought to be a sacrifice. The thing that we lay before God ought to involve effort. It ought to indicate his important place in our lives. Eventually, the temple that his son Solomon would build would be on that spot. And generations later, it would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And so they get to return from exile and under the leadership of Ezra and Zerubbabel and Sheltel and all these other fellows, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and now Nehemiah. The temple is complete and now so is the wall around it. And they're celebrating that moment with another declaration that they're going to do exactly what God has called them to do. They are not going to neglect the house of their God. Less than 300 years after that moment, the temple would be desecrated again because the Persians would no longer be in power. The Greeks would come into prominence. You learn about that in history class when you talk about Alexander the Great. That's a name that you recognize. Well, eventually, in the year 167 BC, 167 years before Jesus came, the Greeks took over that temple province again, and Antiochus IV went and desecrated that temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar, the same altar that Ezra and Nehemiah were surrounding, the same altar that the people had sacrificed burnt offerings on when they were so excited that it was completed in the book of Ezra. That altar would be defiled by Antiochus IV when he sacrificed a pig to the god Zeus on it. And Mattathias, the high priest at that moment, was not going to stand for it. If you know that name, it's because you know Hanukkah. And on December 7th of this year, an eight-day celebration called Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, begins. And I'll tell you, I wish we celebrated that as much as we do our Christmas. Not the part about the nativity, not the part about the baby Jesus, not the part about the wise men and the shepherds, which we're going to get to if you join us for our Christmas series. I'm so excited about it because I love Christmas. But there's all this other stuff, all this other cultural things that we do at Christmas, and I'm not going to give you what that list is, but I don't like any of it. 
It's all the stuff that doesn't point us to Jesus. And we ignore this gift that we've been given called the Feast of Dedication, that festival of lights that points us to Christ just as much as our nativity ever had time to do. So here's your friendly reminder that you should Google it and celebrate Hanukkah this year. It begins on December the 7th. Because just like Nehemiah, Mattathias was not having it. You know, following that moment, Jesus was given the Christ child came. He was dedicated at that temple that Mattathias and his sons cleansed. He was dedicated in that spot and then ultimately crucified outside that city for the sins of humanity. Jesus Christ was an incredible gift to us. And so if anything else, this book of Nehemiah points us to him in an incredible way because God was always building something better in its place. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes to the church and he says, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the story of David. He's talking about the story of Solomon. He's talking about all the things about Moses and Abraham and Esther and Ruth. He's talking about Nehemiah and all of the guys surrounding the rebuilding of the temple and the resurrection of the wall. He's talking about that moment in their history and Paul's writing all of that stuff that happened to them happened as an example to us so that we wouldn't set our hearts on evil things like they did. These things, if you go down to verse 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they happened to them as examples, and they were written down. Like we have these Old Testament scriptures, they were written down for as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, we will not neglect the house of our God. If you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. I can't confirm if this story is actually true or not because I'm, I was too young to remember. But apparently, and my parents say this, they have been known to exaggerate, so I don't know if it's true. I have a cousin who's several years older than me. His name is Eric, and when we were children, apparently, the story goes, is that I followed him around and did everything that he did. And he had a proclivity to do things wrong and to disobey all of our parents. And I would copy him. So apparently there was this one story, I don't even remember exactly what it is, where Eric did something, he got in trouble, and then I copied him and did the exact same thing. Again, I don't remember what it is, and no one has even told me. And so my parents, in a moment of discipline, looked at me and said, Nicholas, that's what they call me. Y'all can call me Nick. Nicholas, why did you do that? To which I apparently, again, I don't remember this, I can't confirm, responded to them by saying, because Eric told me to. And then in a fit of wisdom and or, I don't know what kind of parenting this is, they looked at me and they said, if Eric jumped off the roof of this house, would you do it too? To which apparently, again, I don't remember and I cannot confirm or deny this, I replied, yes, ma'am. <laughs> These things happened as examples to us so that we wouldn't do the same evil or boneheaded thing that they did and they're written down and preserved and have been maintained for us so that we can read it and learn from their example not to make the kinds of empty commitments that were being made but to give ourselves wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord in us if we want to understand what the best kind of commitments that we can make to Jesus are they are the ones that are marked by deep sacrifice and also true joy 
On a Sunday morning, it's typical for us to have ushers come forward at the conclusion of the service, and they're carrying baskets, and they pass them around, and people put in a tithe, or people put in an offering, and people put in their connection cards, their response cards. Guests let us know their name and their email address so that we can follow along with them later on in the week, and then on the back, we all write prayer requests of the things that we need, great God Almighty, to do and accomplish in our lives. We're recognizing, and I will often stand in this spot and say, what we put in that basket, whether it's a prayer request that's deep in our hearts or the money that comes out of our wallet, it is an indication of our trust in Jesus. And if we could, we'd just go ahead and put ourselves in the baskets. Whatever you want to take, God, however you want to use, I actually could fit in this wheelbarrow. I'm not going to try because, again, embarrassment. <laughs> but what does it mean to give God all of us? And what's the sacrifice that we'll bring of ourselves and our time and our talent and our resources to Almighty God? It says in Nehemiah chapter 12, starting in verse 43, that on that day, after they had confessed their sins, on that day, after they had signed with a seal and given themselves as a commitment to God, it says on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. It says the women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I have zero regret in my life for any moment when I've been generous or sacrificial. I do have regret in my life for the moments when I wasn't. Ultimately, ultimately, Nehemiah built the wall. But it wasn't for protection like we think it was. It wasn't just because he was a great leader. It wasn't because we can pull out all these incredible principles about leadership. It wasn't so easy to pull out all these incredible details about what it means to live a life of sacrificial giving. This wall was not about protection. It was about proclamation that there is a living God and here is his home among a people that he loves. Nehemiah, when we really get down to it, is about the gospel. So is everything that we do right now. In this room, when we sing songs, when we give gifts, when we hear words, it's about the gospel goodness of God. When we tell stories to kids and when they do activities in their rooms, when students are downstairs doing Bible study on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, when we gather in this place through women's ministry or through our Wednesday night discipleship opportunities, everything that we do, whether it's serving at the Nashville Christmas Village Wrapping Station or the Cool Springs Galleria for the whole month of December, whether it's going and passing out food for one generation away, whether it's fixing up a gymnasium so that we can use for I don't know, West Nashville sports kids to come in and play basketball on the weekends or putting lights out here and cleaning up the bathrooms at our amphitheater so that the community can use the property that we've been given that somebody said yes so that you and I could have, regardless of what we do, everything, just like the book of Nehemiah and every other page in this book, is all about the gospel goodness of God so that we get to know him and represent him to the world so that other people can realize there's a God that loves them with an everlasting love and they don't have to present themselves as the perfect man or the perfect woman in order to be able to receive it. In fact, he gave it even though we're not and never will be. So you get to chapter 13. And the book of Nehemiah ends on a super anticlimactic note. It's, it's not a really good moment when you get to Nehemiah chapter 13, starting with verse 4. It says, before this, 
Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms in the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And you're like, well, who's Tobiah in this moment? Well, he's a guy that's been a thorn in Nehemiah's side since the very beginning. We kept reading over and over and over about Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshem the Arab. These guys that did not want Nehemiah to successfully resurrect the wall around the city of Jerusalem. He was a thorn in his side. And so Elishia provided Tobiah, verse 5, with a large form, room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. This guy who didn't want the temple to be built and didn't want the wall to be constructed now has a place of honor within it. And while all of that was going on, verse 6, we learned that Nehemiah was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, he returned to the king. He always had a limited amount of time, but a whole abundance of resources to go back and complete the job. And when it was over and they had worshiped, he went back to the capital of Persia. So sometime later, it says in verse six, I asked his permission and I came back to Jerusalem. And it was here I learned about the evil thing Elishayab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. It says, I was greatly displeased and I threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And that's a picture that I wish I could have been there to see. Imagine Nehemiah so mad, he just took all of Tobiah's stuff and threw it outside the room. That would have been a cool moment. And so he gave orders, verse 9, for, to purify the rooms. And then he put back all of the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. He also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and the musicians that were responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So he rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Why is the house of God neglected? In chapter 10, verse 39, they declared that they would never neglect the house of God. So, so, so why so quickly, just a few months after, are they now neglecting the house of God? Nehemiah returned from Persia and he found the wall intact, but he found the faith of the people was once again, just like so many times before, compromised. If you go down to verse 25 in Nehemiah 13, it says, I rebuked them. They hadn't kept the Sabbath. They hadn't been obedient. They hadn't followed the, the word of the Lord that they declared they would follow. They hadn't kept their vows. They hadn't kept their promises. So he rebuked them and he called down curses on them. And then it says, I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. And that really doesn't help me make a scriptural point this morning, but I just wanted to read it because it's fun to say he beat them up and pulled out their hair. And then he made them take an oath in God's name and said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. You're not to take their daughters in marriage for your sons and for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin. And scripture continues outlining the fact that they didn't learn from the mistakes of their ancestors. And what we want to be a people is of people who learn from Old Testament. I love the fact that Scripture doesn't hide from us the mistakes that they made. Nehemiah could have finished with the reading of the law in chapter 6 and 7 where the people laid down on their faces and worshiped God, and we didn't have to know all the details about how when Nehemiah returned, he found them unfaithful once again. But if we didn't have that part, we would miss this part. It was always ever only about 
the gospel because no matter how wicked, no matter how disobedient, no matter how unloving, no matter how unfaithful this people was, God still loved them and us enough to send his son into the world to save us. Nehemiah closes this chapter with some words that he said before. In verse 22, he says, Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me because I did the right thing. No, that's not what it says. Show mercy to me because I accomplished this great task and built your wall. No, that's, that's, that's not what it says. Show mercy to me because all of those people failed and I wasn't with them when they did it. No, that's, that's, that's not what it says, although it's often so much many times what I want to do. I want to stand in front of the Lord and compare myself to all the people around me and go, you know, God, I'm not quite like them. And then Jesus reminds us in the New Testament that while we're so busy plucking the speck out of somebody else's eye, we should be far more concerned with the log in our own Nehemiah didn't say, remember me, God, because I did such a good job. Remember me, God, because I was such a great leader. Remember me, God, because I made such a big sacrifice and gave so much. No, it says, remember me, God, and show mercy according to your great love. It's not about the commitments that we make. It's not about the promises and the vows that we keep. It's not about the perfect life that we could live because newsflash, we can't live it. It's about the abundance of his great love that allows us to be in a relationship with him in spite of the fact that we sin and the book closes out with these words, remember me with favor, my God. If you read them and you like to underline things or highlight things in your scripture, it says, remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy. Underline the word mercy. Highlight the word mercy. Write it really pretty in cursive and get it tattooed to your wrist, the word mercy, because it's a word that we need. Underline, highlight the words great love, because it's only the love of Jesus that allows us to stand in the presence of Almighty God and to be united with him for all eternity. It says, remember me with what? Favor, my God. This unmerited grace, this thing that I don't deserve, this commitment that I wasn't able to keep, and we were able to do 0% better than the generation who came before us, and yet you still loved us enough to send Jesus. I'm glad that the book of Nehemiah concludes with the failure of the people because it was never about their effort or ability. It was always only about the gift that God was going to give them in his one and only son who would become the perfect sacrifice that they needed. Chronologically, the Old Testament concludes with the book of Nehemiah. And then we get 400 years of what in the world's going on. Hanukkah comes to play during that period of time. And then God breaks through with Jesus. And we didn't even know that Nehemiah wasn't pointing us to a city he was pointing us to a savior the whole time. That's what we want to do with our time and with our collected resources and with all of our faith and with all of our effort and with all of our gifts. We want to be a people who recognize that we're not good, but that he's good and he can use us to do far more than what we ever imagined so that people could see him. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for this day. 
Thank you for the chance to be in this place and to come to this moment, one that we've been praying for for weeks, one that we've been excited about for months, one that ultimately has been years and years in the making as you continue to assemble a people who, in spite of their sin, get to be called your beloved. As we represent you in the world so that people can see it's not about us. It's not about how great we are. It's not about how much we give. It's not about all we do, but ultimately about what you, Jesus, have done. We celebrate you today, and we tell you that this and everything else is always only for you. It's in your powerful name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.